Stop the presses. Pull out the front page. Stand by for a replay. Yeah, it's those two guys from Milwaukee. Oh, those two guys from Milwaukee. Here we go again. It's those two guys from Milwaukee. Welcome to Unknown Orbits, the podcast in which two writers discuss everything science fiction from Gernsbach to Roddenberry. Welcome to episode two of Unknown Orbits. I'm Patrick Baird. And I'm Steve Reitze. Tonight, we're going to be talking about one of the great classic science fiction stories of the early years, Martian Odyssey by Stanley Weinbaum. This story is widely considered to be one of the best stories of the early period of science fiction publishing. And the reason that it's considered so good is, first of all, it was very well written. Uh, it was considered to have been, for its time, a very well-written story. And it also has the distinction, allegedly, that it is the first fully formed depiction of an alien. The alien is treated as a full-fledged character on a par with the other characters in the story, with a personality, a language, and motivations of his own. So that that is this claim to fame. Basically, to give you a synopsis of the story, this is the first expedition to land on Mars. And one of their crewmen, Dick Jarvis, gets into a small spacecraft and goes on a scouting mission to fly over the surface of the planet to do some exploring, to see what he can see. As he does, he, he flies over some uh, what he looks like some Martian cities and canals. And of course, this is a early day story. The canals, of course, are actual canals. And as he's flying around exploring the surface, his spaceship runs into a problem and it crashes. And he finds himself uh, hundreds of miles from the main spaceship. So it's a pretty straightforward story of him walking back to the spaceship and what happens to him along the way. Fairly early on, he runs into uh, an alien creature who turns out to be named Tweel, who is being attacked by a Martian monster. He rescues this uh, alien creature from the monster and over the next uh, few pages, he gradually begins to realize this is an intelligent creature. He, he sees unmistakable signs of intelligence, even though he speaks a language that's unintelligible and acts in ways that are very much non-human. So a good part of the early part of the story is him trying to develop a communication with this alien tweel. It, it's almost like a Robinson Crusoe man friday sort of a relationship they're they're both sort of cast adrift and are learning to help each other uh, without having a common language and it's 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 fairly well done along the way they run into some other strange creatures and semi civilizations and really alien type encounters and uh, you know he eventually parts ways with tweel makes it back to the spaceship. And then there's a little bit of a sort of a zinger at the end that I won't spoil for anyone. That's, that's kind of a nice closer for the story. So my personal take on, on A Martian Odyssey is it, it is a well-written story. It was engrossing. It was entertaining. 
there wasn't any part of it that I found to be old fashioned or creaky. I mean, it, it had certainly had that sort of gee whiz, very military style, white guy, early science fiction feel to the earth characters. But I didn't find that that was particularly off-putting because I think if, if you're bothered by that, you're going to be bothered by 80% of everything that was written before 1950, probably. So I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was well-written. I thought it deserved its, its credit. I don't know whether or not it really was the first science fiction story to treat aliens as full characters and to explore the idea of aliens having their own culture and language and uh, you know different personalities so you know that might be a topic for another day that we can find do some research and find evidence that this was not the case but it's generally considered to be the first story of its type and the only thing i want to add to to my take on it is that i saw a number of fairly well-known science fiction writers and critics you know, kind of, kind of saying, ah, oh, this is, you know, it's a, it's a okay story, but it's kind of creaky and it's kind of old fashioned, and it, you know, it's, it, it's really kind of full of cliches and all, and, and all the sort of criticisms you get from modern readers and modern writers when they're talking about the early days of science fiction, kind of a condescending attitude, really, and I find that to be, in general, kind of a problem. When I read something that was written in 1934, which is the year that uh, th- this story was written or published, I should say, uh, or 1909 or 1897 or 1860, I have enough understanding of the history of literature and enough background in, in having read literature from different periods to understand what the standards of the day were what the tropes of the day were, what the styles of the day were. And and I read it, I try to read it in context. I try not to be judgmental about even some of the worst aspects of, of some older fiction. I mean, I'm a big James Bond fan, and I've read all of the Ian Fleming novels, and they're they're terrible, full of racism and sexism and homophobia. And even for their time, it's pretty bad. But at, at the same time, I realize, okay, this is being written by a, a guy who's an epitome of the British Empire. He was a civil servant during the war, totally was in, in favor of the whole imperial agenda of the British Empire. So he's he's writing from a particular perspective. And the James Bond character is a character written to that perspective. So if you understand that, you know, you can be appalled by by aspects of the, the story, but I think you should also read it in, in some degree of context and, and understand what he was trying to do when he wrote it. And I think that's the same thing you can apply here, is that I think that what Weinbaum probably set out to do was to write something along the lines of an Edgar Rice Burroughs Mars adventure and came up with a story and characters that far surpassed anything that Burroughs had done up to that point. So I think he deserves a ton of credit. I think it is a terrific story, and, and, and I believe it probably is pretty important. I remember reading the story many, many years ago when I was first getting into science fiction, and it immediately impressed me. Now, looking back on it in context, I'm more impressed. 
It's funny that you mentioned British adventures, because that was kind of my feeling about it too, that the form of the story is what I referred to as a travelogue. It's not a real solid plot. It's more we go from here to there, to there, to there, and then the story ends. And that's what those British African adventures would do. I think the adventure novel was really popular in the 20s and 30s. You may know more about that than I. Looking back at this, I look at the entire issue of Wonder Stories, what was it, September 1934? Uh, No, July 1934. Okay. And it was the only story in there that had a real modern feel about it. It's really an accomplishment of his that he took that step forward from the bug-eyed monster and the super science stories to create what we would call a very modern kind of story with authentic aliens, aliens that were truly alien, not just a big monster with bulbous eyes. So there, there is an interesting aspect to this story that I ran across as I was doing research on this. And, and that's the background of the magazine Wonder Stories. Uh, Wonder Stories was one of Hugo Gernsback's second round of magazines that he created after he had amazing stories basically taken away from him in bankruptcy. So almost immediately after losing amazing stories, went out and created two magazines, Science Wonder Stories and Air Wonder Stories. And the Air Wonder Stories did not last very long. So he kind of folded those two magazines together and renamed it Wonder Stories. And its main focus was science fiction. In that year, 1930, someone named David Lasser came along to take over as editor of Wonder Stories. He was a recent MIT graduate. He was also a ardent socialist. And he was one of the founders of the American Interplanetary Society, which was an important group in the early 1930s that was promoting the idea of space travel. And the interesting thing is that space, believe it or not, with all these science fiction magazines out there at the time, and Buck Rogers and the comic books, or the comic strips, I should say, uh, it was still widely believed by a lot of fairly important scientific people that space travel was impossible, that it was too dangerous. There's no way to escape the Earth's gravity, whatever the reason was. And that included the editor of Amazing Stories, who took over. I think he might have been there before Gernsbach lost the magazine, but he was definitely uh, the editor afterwards. T. O'Connor Sloan, who was a septuagenarian, very old man, someone with a real science background. But he thought there was a bunch of hooey that you could travel in space, which is really interesting considering the job that he had as editor of Amazing Stories. But anyway, David Lasser comes along and Gernsbach gives him the job of editor of of Wonder Stories. And the great thing is, and, and, and Lasser himself said that the moment he was hired as editor, Gernsbach completely stepped aside and let, let him do whatever he wanted to in terms of what he went out and found and brought into the magazine. And to his credit, David Lasser was an active editor. Now, the popular myth about science fiction in the 1930s is that John W. Campbell 
was this wise man who came along and created the idea of pure science and, and solid science in science fiction and was a, a very active editor who developed his writers and you know developed the field of science fiction deliberately. Well, that's all true. But here's the thing. David Lasser was doing exactly the same thing in the early 1930s at Wonder Stories. He was seeking out science-based stories. Let me read a little a quote from him uh, regarding their editorial policy. Our policy is aimed more at the realistic than the fantastic in science fiction. We find that our readers have wearied a little bit of unbelievable monsters, unbelievable situations, and feats of the imagination that could never become reality. We want imagination used, but we want the author to back it up with a convincing background. So he was actively promoting that idea in the magazine. As I said, he, at the same time, he was one of the founders of the Interplanetary Society. So he was actively promoting science outside of the magazine, but he did work with his writers. And he was someone who encouraged them, helped them to redo their stories, to make them better, gave them ideas. So he was, he was an active editor and someone who was shaping the field of science fiction towards a more scientific background. Now, he was not the editor, however, that discovered Stanley Weinbaum and A Martian Odyssey. He was fired by Gernsbach in 1933 because he spent too much time away from the office engaged in protests and in support of socialism. I don't think Gernsbach cared so much about his politics, but he felt that he was devoting more time to his politics and his extracurricular activities than the editing. And besides, since uh, Hugo Gernsbach was renowned for being a, a very cheap man, he uh, realized that he could fire him and replace him with somebody much cheaper. And he did. He found a young man, and his name was Charles Hornig. I know that name. Who Charles Hornig took over as editor of Wonder Stories in 1933 while he was still in high school. So you can imagine how cheap Gernsbach got him. But the, the good thing is that Hornig carried on the same sort of editorial philosophy that David Lasser had started, again, as emphasizing science working actively with his writers. And he was the one that discovered a Martian Odyssey. And he immediately recognized it for the important and, and high quality story what, that it was. And he showed it to Gernsbach, Gernsbach agreed. So there was a recognition from the start that this was an important story. So Wonder Stories continued on for a few more years. Hornig moved on to other things. It just like it happened time and time again with Gernsbach, the magazine was sold off to some other company and he immediately moved on and started up other magazines, a pattern that just continued throughout his life. But I thought that this was a really important opportunity as we're talking about this story to point out that the early 1930s were not a barren wasteland of pulp science fiction and space opera that there were people working in the field, writers and editors, who were trying to put more of a scientific spin 
on science fiction. And Wonder Stories was a part of that for a brief couple of years. And I think that uh, Hornig and Lasser deserve credit for that. And I think the fact that they published Martian Odyssey is testimony to the, that philosophy that they helped pioneer. It does seem to be a very modern story. Looking at that entire issue, the other stories in there, uh, Eando Binder is in there, and, and he became well-known. I think he's kind of forgotten these days. Uh, it was actually a brother team. I forget their names, but their initials were E and O Binder. Oh, how clever. Yes. And by our standards today, about half the issue is Phil, filling it with tons of stuff like uh, letters from our readers, science questions answered. The latest on the Interplanetary Society, the Cleveland Rocket Society. There's there's quite a lot of fill in there. But it was a big magazine. I don't know if you noticed, but the page numbering was numbered across issues, which is something that's usually done by academic journals. I'm willing to bet you that that was a Gernsbachian thing. If you remember, he started out publishing radio part catalogs and, and journals for, for radio technology. So I think he probably saw himself as publishing journals. So I, I, I'm guessing, if I was to guess, I'd say that was a Gernsbach flourish that he used uh, in his magazines. Actually, you have to give him credit. The fillers in the magazine are at least some kind of content. There is a half page at the end of A Martian Odyssey. There's a small article on just eight paragraphs. Tests possibility of rocket ships. Cleveland engineer believes in such air propulsion. And what's a little bit interesting is actually the, the person they mentioned, Ernest Lobel, went on to give a small contribution to rocket science. He has a Wikipedia entry. Well, I mean, I think that was probably David Lasser's input. He was very much a proponent. They had they had conferences. They had um, meetings where they would bring in keynote speakers. And they actually attracted uh, quite significant crowds to a lot of their, their meetings and their seminars. It's a testimony to the popularity of science fiction in the early 1930s. As I mentioned before, this is at the time when Buck Rogers was in the comic strips it was really beginning to take off in mass culture in some ways. So it's really good to know that the actual science of space travel was well-received by, by the general public at the time, or at least a large group of complete nerds of some kind. We definitely have to do a podcast on early fandom. Yes, well, that's, I think that's on the list. So let, let me just, uh, a couple quick points. Um, you were talking about the, the poor quality of that issue that you looked at. Lasser did publish, or Wonder Stories did publish the first stories of writers like John Wyndham and Clifford D. Simak. So they, they were able to find and attract quality writers. A lot of the top writers in the field did contribute from time to time to Wonder Stories. Although I'm assuming that the low pay rate of Hugo Gernsbach probably kept the quality of the magazine low on an issue-to-issue basis because they had probably had to go with real hack writers that were willing to take a quarter cent or half a cent per, per word for their stories. 
I didn't think it was bad because of editorial policies. I, I just kind of had the impression that they didn't have a lot to choose from. Yeah, all this bug-eyed monster stuff had run its course. Weinbaum was a breath of fresh air. And I think when writers like him and Wyndham and Cymax started writing, it showed other people what science fiction could be, and it showed them what direction to go in and elevated the field in general. Right. And, and to, to circle back to my point about David Lasser, it was that was not a mere coincidence. It was deliberate editorial policy. And I think that Wonder Stories deserves some credit for that. Yeah. I think people give credit to Astounding as being that final vision, but it had to start somewhere first. Yeah, that's 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 the the impression that I want to. If I want to leave one impression tonight, it's the impression that throws a little cold water on the idea that Astounding Magazine was where science fiction really began, where adult science based science fiction began. I, I think that's way overstating the the truth. There was enough of it before then, and and some of it was in Gernsbach magazines. People like to slag on Gernsbach, but the truth of the matter is that that he did publish a a decent amount of good science fiction over the course of his early years as a publisher. Astounding didn't invent science fiction, but they kind of perfected it. I think I think they what they did is is we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves because we're definitely going to be talking about Astounding magazine and John W. Campbell in, in the near future. I think what they did is they took this thread that already existed and wound it up into a, into a magazine that really stood for that. You know, what I'd like to do when we get to that point, one of the things I'd like to do is pull out some of those early issues of Astounding Magazine edited by John W. Campbell and, and see just how far off they were from something like Wonder Stories. You know, did they have garbage? I know that I'm pretty sure they did, having read some uh, biography of him and a few other people of the time. Uh, I think there was, I think it was maybe a, took a while before that magazine became the legend that it became. So when we get to that, that's one thing I want to look at. So we've already talked about the story of Martian Odyssey and our impressions on it. What would be your evaluation of its impact? I would say that it, again, I, I can't speak to how innovative or influential it was in terms of how it changed the perception of aliens as characters in science fiction. I'll take the, the word of people like Isaac Asimov and others of the time who think it was an extremely important story. I'll, I'll just accept that. But I think it's just it just stands as an example of a really nice piece of writing that is very enjoyable, you know, even for a modern audience. I think it's still a very enjoyable piece of fiction. To me, it was like a, a better written version of an Edgar Rice Burroughs Mars novel. If I was going to sum it all up, that's what I would say. I feel its importance is in, I keep coming back to the phrase, modern style of writing. It's not a pot boiler. It's not a space opera. It's a fairly straightforward, clean bit of writing. And I think it really sticks out in the issue in that respect. And the idea of the aliens being so alien. And I think he went to great lengths to create alienness. And that's one of the 
best parts of the story is early on, he initially isn't sure whether Tweel is a intelligent creature or just sort of like an ape or something, you know, the equivalent Martian equivalent of an ape. It's that early phase where he's watching his behavior and deducing from the behavior that he's observing that he's an intelligent being. And that's really one of the most interesting parts of the whole story and, and the one that I, I think I appreciated the most. I really like the fact that he reached, what was it? It was like eight words maybe. And then he, he hits a brick wall and the rest of the story relies on, on just those few words for communication between yeah. the two. Yeah. Which is realistic because, you know, you're talking about a matter of a few days, you know, in terms of time. So again, just logical and well-written. Yeah. And you said he died young? Yeah. Forgot to mention one of the most important points about Stanley Weinbaum is like the two of us, two guys from Milwaukee, he was born and uh, lived in the wonderful city of Milwaukee, but he did die a little over a year after A Martian Odyssey was published. He died at age 31, very young. So a, a real loss to the science fiction community, but uh, he did manage to put out quite a few good stories in that short period of time. Yes. So anyway, I think that's all we have tonight. Please join us again next time for Unknown Orbits from Gernsback to Roddenberry. I'm Patrick Baird. And I'm Steve Reitze. Keep watching the stars. Have a good day. That's all for today. Pat and I thank you for listening and invite you to come back for the next episode of Unknown Orbits. Two guys from Milwaukee.